Hey, y'all, and welcome to the College Football Recruiting Podcast by SB Nation. This is Bud Elliott, your National Recruiting Director. Uh, and on this show, I talk a little college football recruiting, a little college football in general, uh, the marriage of football and recruiting, and also a little gambling. That was a pretty unique weekend. Up to this point in the season, I feel like we, we had had a lot of upsets, um, but not upsets involving top five teams, you know, top, top 10 teams. For the most part, it, it had been those teams in that sort of 10 to 25 range, really shockingly losing to teams that you, you figured didn't have much of a shot. Um, this year, upsets where the Vegas spread was at least double digits, you know, 10 points or more, they were actually up 50%. But you had a lot of undefeated teams. You also had a bunch of teams that had had three losses. So what a weekend. I mean, Washington goes down. Clemson goes down. Michigan goes down. All in sort of various uh, stages of surprising. Maybe Washington the least surprising. Um, My friend David Hale at ESPN had a really good stat. He said, you have to go back to 2011 to find another season in which there were this few contenders for a a, a playoff or or back then a hypothetical playoff. If you look at it, undefeated teams, one-loss teams, and two-loss teams, we only have 17 this year, at least of of the Power Five, and obviously undefeated for for Group Five. Last year at this point, we had 20. Previous year, had 20, then 21, 18, 19, yep, you know, 2010 had 16. There really is kind of a separation, and as Bill Connolly put it, kind of a lack of a second tier. You have a first tier, assuming you're still willing to group Alabama with the other teams in that first tier, and then a, a lack of a sort of a a middle upper class, um, or upper, upper middle class, probably a better way to phrase that. And then you get down to, there's a whole lot of teams in that third tier. And, you know, maybe a good jumping off point for this do you still have Washington in that elite tier? Or are they starting to form that sort of secondary tier? I, I got a kick out of it as the recruiting guy, out of Chris Peterson talking about how he recruits and identifies players. And uh, about about 10 days ago, he said uh, on, on recruiting, he, he was talking about how some guys love recruiting but not football. He said, is he really our kind of guy? Does he truly love football? On a scale of 1 to 10, does he love it out of 15? I, I make a big thing that nowadays – because I think so many kids don't love football. They love recruiting. They love being recruited. But when it comes down to loving the game, when it's week eight, you're sore and tired and you're going to go out to practice and get better. Those guys are hard to find. And I agree with Peterson. You do see a lot of kids who uh, are a lot more concerned with their star rating than, than actually how they play on Friday nights. Um, but it's a little bit ironic that, that he's talking about this, and then all of a sudden Washington goes out and loses the first game that it's played against a team that has, uh, I would say, better athletes across the board. Washington has played the, the worst non-conference schedule in the country, sort of very Baylor-esque. And, uh, and they got pretty dominated on, on Saturday night physically. They, they couldn't run the football. Uh, the receivers didn't get consistent separation. Their offensive line really couldn't hold up. Jake Browning, um, who had played really well this year, and I think he's still a very promising quarterback, couldn't get it done. That was, you know, if you look at it, who is the last team to win a national title from the Pac-12? It's, it's USC. 
the only team in the Pac-12 that has won a national title in the last quarter century is USC. And the reason is just pure talent. The other teams in the Pac-12 have not recruited well enough to actually win a national title. Uh, and that until that changes, I don't think you'll see a national champion come out of the Pac-12 unless USC continues to progress because they're just not bringing in enough talent uh, yet to do so. But I, I will say this. Washington had a great weekend of recruiting. They, allowed, they, they nabbed uh, Elijah Molden, really promising prospect, one of the best in Oregon. And he actually uh, committed to Washington as Oregon was losing to Stanford. So uh, kind of a, a twin killing there uh, against, against Oregon. And then they got uh, a commitment from an offensive tackle who, if you watch the game against USC, you can really tell that they need some offensive tackle help. Uh, Henry Bionvalu, another four-star out of Washington that keep him home. Washington is actually 17th nationally in recruiting this year, which is a lot better than they usually do. Uh, and they have nine blue-chip players and only five non. That's the best ratio in the Pac-12, even higher than USC. So maybe Chris Peterson is managing to find talent who also wants to work like he thinks they want to work, or maybe he is uh, starting to just recruit more talent. Um, it'll be interesting to see if he can go and bring in more talented players, but still maintain that same chemistry that has produced some really good results for Washington. Um, and I'll be interested to see if Washington can still make the playoff with a loss. Because you got to think the ACC champion, assuming it's Clemson, is in. Uh, you got to think the, the Big Ten champion is going to be in. I think Alabama can probably get in with the loss. This is going to be the first real test for the committee, and I'm not going to talk about the committee a whole lot here because I feel like every other podcast nationally is going to be doing that, and I, I want to not do that. But real quickly, I do think it'll be very interesting for the committee to see will they value a conference championship from Washington over perhaps uh, a one-loss Ohio State or a one-loss Louisville, teams that have been um, more dominant arguably against uh, certainly inarguably tougher schedules. I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see. It, it'll also be interesting, I think, will Washington get another shot at USC in the conference title game, or will it have to play Utah or Colorado? I think for Washington, the best-case scenario for it would be to get the shot at USC, the, the rematch, which doesn't seem all that likely, and then perhaps pull that win off. Because I, I do think that USC is not unbeatable, although they've been playing great ever since they made that quarterback change, and, and Clay Helton seems to have things going in the right direction there. If you're a Pac-12 fan, though, just a fan of the conference, or perhaps if you work for the conference, well, you have to be disappointed that Washington lost because that, that would be sort of an automatic playoff berth if they'd run, that, run the table. I do think you have to be really encouraged by the way USC has turned things around. And now USC, you know, they, they don't lose a whole lot of talent off this team. They're, they're recruiting well. They seem to have a little bit of, of team stability under Clay Helton. It's it's going to be interesting to see where they go. And, and I, I kind of think you feel good about, about the league moving forward. I know Stanford has not lived up to expectations. Oregon may be going, undergoing a, a coaching change and has been sort of backsliding ever since they lost Marcus Mariota. But USC is your bluest of blue bloods. And for them to actually start looking good again, that's a really good sign for that league. The next thing I want to pivot and talk about is quarterback play. And 
look, it's the most it's the most important position on the field, and and the one thing you really got to have, for the most part, if you want to win a title, you you got to have at least good quarterback play, or or if you don't have Alabama level talent, you, you kind of need to have crazy elite quarterback play. And the SEC's quarterback play this year has been been pretty bad. You know, you have at the top of your leaderboard in conference play, if you sort by quarterback rating, I mean, Chad Kelly at 143, 144, that's that's not that great. Uh, you know, Jalen Hurts is now up there. We'll talk about him in a second. Josh Dobbs, again, nothing special. Uh, Sean White, really not very good. Uh, you know, Austin Allen of Arkansas, kind of promising. Arkansas is really not that good this year. I mean, Danny Etling is now your sixth-rated passer in the SEC in conference play with a uh, quarterback rating of 118. I think quarterback play is probably the number one reason why people think the SEC is down this year. It's really – it. A, a lot of your better quarterbacks are not on the best teams, and that makes them vulnerable. And it seems very likely that everybody after – uh, after this weekend, it seems really likely that every team in the SEC is going to have three-plus losses, with the exception of, of course, Alabama. And I do think that the, the criticisms of the quarterback play are fair. But I I don't think this is going to last. And, and and here's why. You know, Alabama has Jalen Hurts, true freshman quarterback. Number two in the SEC in QB rating almost a two-to-one touchdown-to-interception ratio, extremely good runner. I mean, he's, I don't know how many yards he has exactly, but it, yeah, 735 yards this year, uh, 5.83 per carry, and that's the, by the stupid college stats, which also includes sacks. Next year, I think the SEC could ha- could arguably have the best quarterbacks in the nation. And, and you know, I've noticed some things. I watched a lot of SEC football this weekend in addition to watching the Clemson-Pitt game and the Michigan-Iowa game and the USC-Washington game. I had a couple TVs going there in the living room. It was a good time. Did you know that Alabama threw the football 28 times in the first half against Mississippi State? Maybe a couple more if you count the the scrambles and the sacks. 30-ish dropbacks in the first half against Mississippi State in a game that Alabama was favored by almost 30 points. And I thought about it, and I said, why? And then I thought a little more, and I said, okay, well, maybe LSU exposed something as far as how to take away Alabama's run game and and force Jalen Hurts to beat you as a passer. And this is a pretty common theme, but when when Hurts has the ability – to really threaten the defense with the run, either via play action or when scrambling is a true threat. His numbers are really good, but if you look at his numbers on third down and seven-plus yards to go, so basically situations where the defense absolutely knows Jalen Hurts has got to throw the football, and they're not that concerned with him scrambling, and they're really not concerned with play action. You know, he's got some really good receivers with, with, with Ridley and our Darius Stewart and a couple other guys. Obviously, O.J. Howard at tight end. His numbers this year, and this includes the Mississippi State game, but 17 of 32. That's only 53%. Six and a, a quarter per attempt. Again, that's that's really poor. Uh, 
one to three touchdown to interception ratio, and only nine first downs. Nine first downs on 32 throws in those situations. Not, not obviously, not even including the sacks. If I'm Alabama, I'm a little bit concerned about that, at least going into the playoff, because there's a chance you could face a defense that's going to force you to throw, you know, and maybe can take away your run game. Maybe Michigan could, maybe Ohio State could, maybe Clemson could. Uh, hell, maybe Washington could. I, I, you know, USC ran the ball okay, but not not amazingly. I do think that's why Alabama did that, and yet he is so promising. I mean, to be a true freshman operating at that high of a level uh, and and getting better, I think as as the season wears on, I mean, he's getting more comfortable. And Jalen Hurts is going to be a really good quarterback. And Alabama may win a national title with him this year. But that's going to be a really promising QB for the SEC. And, you know, he's not that big. Uh, maybe not quite the, the profile of an NFL draft type, you know, early injury NFL draft type quarterback necessarily. Um, given that you know, Alabama's run a lot of spread option type stuff right now. He may be there a while. That's really encouraging. I mean, if you're the SEC already has the best players at pretty much every other position. So if you're an SEC fan, there's a really good chance that quarterback play is going to get a hell of a lot better and soon. Shea Patterson, Ole Miss, leads an incredible comeback over Texas A&M. I know uh, I have got a piece coming up with this on Stephen Godfrey a little bit later this week, but my general thought on this, and look, I, I love Shea Patterson. I, I think he was the most college-ready quarterback in the 2015 recruiting class. I think Jacob Eason has a higher ceiling, but I think Patterson was the most college-ready in terms of his ability to read a defense, get rid of the ball quickly, uh, maturity factor, all those things really play into it. He goes for 402 total yards, 138 QB rating against a, a pretty damn good A&M defense on the road in his first ever college start. And, and my thought was, look, if you're going to pull the red shirt off him after Chad Kelly got hurt, and that's a decision that Hugh Freeze had to make, you know, do you pull it, do you not? Don't pull it and half-ass it. Either do it and start him and take the lumps, or le- or, or, or don't even bring him on, on, on the trip. Because to me, the worst thing you could have done was to play him and then maybe pull him if he didn't start real well and then uh, you know give him half playing time. If he's your guy, make him your guy. And to Hugh Freeze's credit, he did just that. I think that's a big deal. Should he have done it? Well, let's look at a couple things. First, the win really increases Ole Miss's chance of getting to a bowl game. Um, now they're incredibly likely to go bowling. I think that will happen, and uh, and that's a big deal. I mean, you don't want to backslide so much to where you, you don't go to a bowl, and certainly you could blame it somewhat on defensive injuries, uh, offensive line injuries, Chad Kelly getting hurt and, and missing your last, uh, I think, last three or four games of the, of the regular season. You know, going to a bowl is important, especially it's, it's sort of a given in a lot of programs, but not really necessarily at Ole Miss. So to go to a bowl is, is a big deal. To have a chance to finish with a winning record is a big deal. Uh, to have a chance to beat Mississippi State again is yet another big deal. I think the bigger reason why he did it, though, Hugh Freeze, Hugh Freeze did it, is about recruiting. Um, you know, Ole Miss's recruiting right now is is not going so well. They're they're ranked 54th in the nation 
They have one blue chip prospect. Their talent level is about to decrease significantly because the, the guys are going to lose the NFL draft. They're not replacing them at a, a high level right now. The recruiting is, is essentially in shambles. If you ever have to pull up the recruiting rankings and you have to click next to, to see more teams, that's a bad sign because there are 50 teams listed when you pull up the 247 sports recruiting rankings. I think this was the right move, not only to go to a bowl game, not only to potentially beat your rival uh, and, and to keep things moving, but also for recruiting purposes. Because a lot of programs, I'm sure, are negatively recruiting Ole Miss right now, saying, hey, the NCAA is going to drop the hammer on Ole Miss. Ole Miss is going to be totally screwed. You're not going to go to bowl games. The, the talent level is going to really drop. And that, that recruiting is working because the uncertainty and the extension of the NCAA timeline when they found more stuff has really hurt Ole Miss on the recruiting trail. You have guys like a, a local five-star running back, Cam Akers. How hard is he actually considering Ole Miss? Ole Miss people seem to think he's considering them quite a bit. Other people think it's more of like an LSU-Florida State-Ohio State battle, and that because he's an early enrollee and this NCAA business is certainly not going to be concluded before then, uh, he's not going to risk his future on that uncertainty. You know... I still think it could help, though, because people could recruits could see Shea Patterson and they could see how well he's playing and, and how promising he is. And if you're Ole Miss, you could actually pitch. Look, even if the NCAA does do something, it's going to be a very short punishment, and you'll have a chance to play with this guy. This is a national championship type quarterback, uh, talent wise. Don't you, you don't want to pass up that that chance? And I think that's smart. I, I think that they will see some dividends in recruiting. Now maybe. It'll be a harder to spot because they're they're so far down. But I, I think they'll close a little bit better than some people think. And I think playing Shea Patterson is a part of that. People may say it's a desperation move on Hugh Freeze's part, and that's that's hard to argue with. I think the, the other side of the coin here, you know, not that Hugh Freeze is on the hot seat or anything, but look, if if you don't go to a bowl game, that's that's not a good sign for your career in, in the direction of the program. Did Hugh Freeze waste a year of Shea Patterson potentially just to play three or four games? Uh, you can argue that. However, if you're a person that thinks he's only going to be here three years and then go off the NFL, then you might as well play him anyway. I'm not sure I buy into that. Uh, Shea Patterson is not that big of a guy physically. Um, he's probably like closer to six foot than he is you know, six three or six four. He's not very, you know, built. He's kind of slight of build. He has the look more of like a great college quarterback than a great NFL quarterback, I, I think, compared to Drew Brees on a number of times, given his, his quick release and his uh, ability to quickly read a defense. Not that he's Drew Brees' talent level, but, you know, maybe freshman Drew Brees versus freshman Shea Patterson. But guys like that typically don't go all that high in the NFL draft uh, due to their size concerns and durability concerns. I think there's a chance Ole Miss gets four years out of Patterson. Now, I don't know if he's going to get five, and, and that may be where the, the deciding split comes on this. Should you have redshirted him? Could you get four full? Who knows? But I, given that he doesn't play in a, in a pro-style system, in, in a system that really doesn't have a whole lot of translatable stuff to the league, and that he's not that big, I, I don't think that he necessarily was, was going to be an automatic three-and-out guy. Like a fellow quarterback, pivoting here, natural transition, uh, that'd be Jacob Eason at Georgia, who 
I don't want to say led his team to a victory over Auburn. Uh, he did not. But his team did beat Auburn, thanks mostly in part to their how their defense was playing and how Sean White was apparently a lot more hurt than we realized going 6-20 for 27 yards. That's not the, not the best stat line there for Auburn's quarterback. But Jacob Easton has led a number of drives this year that either did win games or, or would have won games. Did it against North Carolina. Uh, you know, did it. I think he led that drive against Vanderbilt that ultimately Georgia failed on because they, they got a run stop, but he was, he was leading that. Um, you know, led a game-winning drive at Missouri. Um, led what, for all intents and purposes, was a game-winning drive against Tennessee, and the defense gave up a Hail Mary. He's been pretty good in, in, in big situations, and Georgia's offensive personnel, man, it, yuck. It, the job Mark Rick did the last couple of years recruiting on offense, other than the running back position, was was not that good. And yet I think Georgia fans have got to be really happy that Mark Rick got Jacob Eason to Georgia, at least the introduction-wise. I know Kirby Smart closed that out when um, when when Rick left for Miami. But you know, Georgia's receivers are nothing special. They don't have any offensive tackles, which is troubling, although they're recruiting extremely well, so that should get fixed pretty soon. He's getting really beat up. And, and I think that the most impressive thing is you can just see the NFL talent in Jacob Eason with, with some of the throws he makes. And they're just, they're throws other guys just don't make. You know, over one defender in front of another one uh, or or zipping some passes in, in the windows and zone covers that just you, you just don't see. He has a, a really, um, like a rare shot maker ability. The ability to put exactly the right amount of touch and RPMs on a ball that a lot of people just can't do. And if Georgia's able to surround him with talent during the time that he's actually in Athens, that could be really special. I mean, and, and see, so you're getting my point here. Jalen Hurts, Shea Patterson, Jacob Beeson, true freshman quarterbacks in the league who I think are already good and are really potentially moving up. But I meant I meant to mention this on, on Shea Patterson. His quarterback ratings in that game went up every quarter. First quarter, 75. That's garbage. Second quarter, 113. Still not that great. Third quarter, 119. Kind of inching the way back to respectability there. Fourth quarter, 236. That's that's quite a quarter there. Eason doing the same thing. Oftentimes playing his best ball late in games, uh, getting more comfortable running that offense, I think, despite the fact that he's really getting beat up. That Auburn defensive front is maybe second only to Alabama nationally in terms of talent. And they, they had their way with, with Jordan's offensive line. He kept standing in there and playing just like another kid did for South Carolina, Jake Bentley. And I was very impressed with what he's done over the last month. Now, Florida beat him up really good. He did not have a good game against Florida that that was just a, a line, a defensive line, even with some guys out, that South Carolina had no shot at at blocking. But Jake Bentley should arguably be in high school right now. He skipped his senior year of high school, and, and I know he's overaged a little bit, so you know potentially you can make the argument that he's really the age of a college freshman, and that, that's fine. Uh, but, but he did skip his senior year of high school the entire senior year, not just the, the last semester, to enroll at South Carolina. And, and for him to be playing as well, you know, to play as well as he did, Against Missouri, not a good defense. Against Tennessee, a, a decent defense. Against UMass, obviously a terrible team. I, I was impressed. And I do think that, that he played better against Florida than his numbers showed. He made a number of throws early on 
that would have kept South Carolina drives alive, and his receivers just dropped him. That's four quarterbacks right there in the SEC that I think you've got to be really excited about um, moving forward. And if you look at it next year, you know, Austin Allen at Arkansas could be your fifth best quarterback in the league. Or maybe Sean White, if, if he's healthy, you know, he's just a redshirt sophomore. Maybe he could be your fifth best quarterback. It Maybe that makes Austin Allen your sixth best QB. And maybe that makes, I don't know, Danny Etlin. Uh, your your seventh best, or maybe Drew Locke of Missouri um, kind of comes along a little bit and, and he starts playing better. If you're if you're top six or seven quarterbacks in the league, and, and hell, we don't know what Ford is going to do. Maybe maybe McElwain will be able to develop one eventually there. If you have sophomore Jalen Hurts, sophomore Shea Patterson, sophomore Jacob Eason, sophomore Jake Bentley as your four sort of top talents to go along with some some quality veterans and a Sean White and Austin Allen and, and, and maybe if you want to call him a quality veteran, a, a Danny Etling. Whew. The SEC quarterback situation is about to get a hell of a lot better than it is now. Not to mention Austin's Woody Barrett or uh, Auburn's Woody Barrett, a, a kid who's really talented, tweeted that like maybe it was, a, I forgot the exact wording of the tweet, but he said something like, uh, you know, he, he's waited his turn and blah, blah, blah. So maybe that's a situation where he could be uh, coming in, and he is incredibly athletic, and a guy that I think is better suited to run Auburn system than anybody they've had uh, since they took a cornerback from Georgia, made him a QB again, and went to the national title game in 2013. Look, I, I don't want to talk just about quarterbacks in the SEC. I think that there are a number of other young quarterbacks to, to recognize. Shane Bouchelle of Texas has had a really nice year. Um, running that offense. I think he's tailor-made to run that offense at Texas. And I do think that he'll become a better college quarterback as time goes by. Now, one thing I noticed about him, and I brought this up with Jalen Hurts, the weakness. So I want to bring it up here too with Shane Bouchelle. His third and seven plus passing. So when the when the defense typically knows that a run is not a real threat, when the scramble is not a real threat, when oftentimes you're not able to play with, with quite the blistering tempo that Texas wants to play with. Because a lot of times they get to third and seven, they're going to maybe, maybe they huddle, maybe they take a little bit more time to figure out the right play they want to call. He's 18 of 42. Christ. With only nine first downs. So you're talking about you know less than a 25% success rate there. 214 yards on 42 throws, which is, um, you know, terrible. Touchdown-interception ratio of 1 to 2, and a quarterback rating of 82. And part of this, I do think, is arm strength. People conflate the ability to throw the deep ball, like the go route, which is more of a touch throw, in all honesty, than, and they, they take and they, they conflate that with the ability to have arm strength and the ability to drive the football. Those are not the same things. I do think that when the defense knows he has to pass, he gets fewer one-on-one opportunities, and, he, and he's not quite as good at figuring out where to go with football and, and driving it in there in those sort of tight zones, especially past the sticks. Part of that, too, could be his receivers. I mean, some of those receivers in that team are, are more one-trick ponies. Uh, they're, they're really good at the deep ball, but they're not quite as good when they have to run a greater variety of routes. Um, I don't want to put that on all on Bichelle, but I think he's a promising young quarterback out there. And, and I'm excited to see that. He was another very highly rated guy. As was Sam Darnold, 
who we spoke about it real briefly in the open of this podcast, but USC's kid, Sam Darnold, I know he's a red shirt. Whew. Uh, in conference play, quarterback rating of 167. And I know that the defenses in the Pac-12 are not necessarily the best, but that's ridiculous. 20 to 6 touchdown to interception ratio, 8.9 per attempt. That's amazing. And, and the one thing that I really like about Darnold is that he has this sort of rare innate ability to locate receivers downfield as he's scrambling around and then hit them in stride. And that's really hard to do. And I don't know if that's something that you can teach all that well. It may just be something either you have it or you don't. And he's a very good athlete. I think that uh, probably because of the white thing, you know, the people falsely assume because of their preconceived racial biases. Uh, that you know, black kids are, are more runners and white kids are more throwers. And um, Darnell is extremely athletic and does a great job avoiding the rush, buying himself enough time. And I don't think he has the biggest arm in the world, but damn, if he's not accurate when, when he's running around. And that's really impressive because he can also play within the confines of USC's offense. I think he's great on play action, especially on second down. After a, after a successful run, when they play action with him, he does he's really good. They hit USC on that a number of times. And if if you're a, if you're USC, to have a, a kid who's a redshirt freshman be this good this early, now you know you got at least one more year and probably two or three more years uh, left of him continuing to surround him with talent. That team is, is becoming more and more of his team, more and more of Clay Helton's team. And so rarely does it work out where a quarterback change just totally changes the fortunes of a team. I mean, usually the fans clamor for that, and the results are underwhelming. But, but damn, if it hasn't in, in, in Los Angeles. I mean, that's a completely different team than it was with, with, with Max Brown. So very impressed to see that. And then the other red, the other uh, freshman, redshirt freshman, DeAndre Francois, who plays for Florida State. Right now, right now, he's only seventh in the ACC in passer rating. Uh, in conference play. That's not that impressive, except when you consider who is in front of him. I mean, this has been a tr- a really unique year in the ACC for passers. You know, Mitch Trubisky, North Carolina. Deshaun Watson of Clemson. Nathan Peterman of Pittsburgh, who's had a couple huge games and, and um, you know, has not had to face all of the great defenses in, in the league. Lamar Jackson. Gerard Evans of Virginia Tech, who... Vatek, it's important to note, didn't have to face Clemson, didn't have to face Louisville, didn't have to face an improving Florida State defense. Brad Kaya of Miami. That is re- to be seventh is not a, not an accomplishment necessarily in conference play. However, to be seventh behind those guys sort of speaks to where he is. And and look, he has major accuracy issues and has had them. Since high school, and if those don't get fixed, it will hold him back from becoming an elite quarterback. So merely be good. Uh, his interception avoidance has been good. He's only thrown three, and that that was certainly a concern. I get to watch him a lot because I also run the Tomahawk Nation blog. I think he's done a much better job of reading defenses than I expect him to do. Now the accuracy has not been has not been good. Uh, a lot of times teams load up against um, Dalvin Cook. Francois gets a lot of one-on-one opportunities and has just thrown uncatchable balls uh, far too often. 
But he's going to be one of the best passers in the ACC next year because they're going to lose four of their six. I mean, Trubisky, Watson, and Kaya could all go pro early. Peterman graduates. Um, Gerard Evans, I, I think, I mean, he's a junior, but I, I have to imagine he'll come back because he's not done necessarily all that well throwing the football. But that's a, a tremendous amount of quarterback talent lost for the ACC. And defenses in the ACC next year are certainly going to benefit. Um, the, the, the dynamic of the league really changes. I mean, DeAndre Francois goes from your seventh best quarterback to your second or third behind Deshaun Watson. Well, damn. I mean, that's that's really uh, it's a big deal. Some other stuff I noticed from this weekend. Uh, injuries were a big-time uh, theme. Seth Russell of, of Baylor, obviously, a I think a broken ankle or something. It looked pretty ugly. Malik Jefferson of Texas was held out with a, uh, I believe, a head injury, maybe concussion protocol there. David Sharp, Tyler Jordan, two starting offensive linemen for Florida, left the game. Not sure of their status. I think I saw Marcus May, their safety. Real nice kid. I remember talking to him a number of times as a recruit. I think he's done for the year with a broken arm. And then uh, Pitts, Jordan Whitehead, a really talented kid. Uh, the injury was so bad that ABC actually refused to show a replay of it. So that's probably not a uh, not a good sign. And I wish all those kids well. Um, I, I thought it was cool that Oklahoma went up to Baylor's quarterback, Seth Russell, and they all they all gave him props and, and gave him well wishes. Even though that game was getting very chippy and kind of ugly and a lot of trash talking, I think they respect him as a competitor, and I was glad to see that they they show good sportsmanship. I'm not one of these I've got to be classy sort of 80-year-old columnists, but it's it's good to show some sportsmanship, and I like that. Uh, other stuff that caught my eye this weekend. This is sort of a catch-all thing when, when I take notes on some of these games that I'm watching. It's my job, so I like to try to write stuff down as I see it. Uh, some teams really struggled this, this weekend with downfield passing. And I'll start with the Florida and South Carolina game. That was almost unwatchable for a while. And I know Andy Staples tweeted about this as well as Sports Illustrated. I, I don't think they completed the pass more than 10 yards in the air in the first half of that game. I mean, it was just everything was screen, 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 defensive backs not really wanting to play through blocks. Uh, and, and it kind of left me wondering, okay, certainly some of this is because they can't protect the quarterback. But if you're if you're South Carolina, that's probably not going to work too well against Clemson because Clemson can rush the passer. If you're Florida – and obviously you were without Luke Del Rio, and, and I don't know if you want to put him back in the lineup because Austin Appleby looked okay. Is what, what Florida did with all that screen stuff, is that actually going to translate against LSU or, or Florida State? Those are, are, in LSU's case, a defense that has played incredibly well all year. In Florida State's case, a defense that has played better of late, albeit against um, you know, lesser competition, so everybody's going to look a little better when they're facing Wake Forest, NC State, and Boston College. I, I, I struggle to have real takeaways from that game, other than Florida's receivers, other than Antonio Callaway, really need to help out Austin Appleby a little more. And then he was a much better runner than I thought he would be. I, I didn't realize he had those wheels, and, and they did a good job with some of the zone read game uh, and, and kept South Carolina off balance some there. But it was interesting to see just how how – in, in bad of shape, talent-wise, Spurrier had left South Carolina. 
and then also just the, the general sort of lack of, of development of talent that Muschamp's staff had done in Gainesville. I, I do think that Florida is still suffering from, from what Muschamp left him there. And the Will Greer suspension and subsequent transfer certainly hurts, because if they had Greer, I think Florida would be a much better team uh, than they've been. But it wasn't just that game that lacked the downfield passing. Uh, Wilton Spate for Michigan, and I'll credit Pro Football Focus here for this stat, one of 13 on throws that went 10 or more yards in the air. And that's surprising because Michigan, I feel like they're not always the best at, at maybe spreading the ball around in the passing game, but they have some guys on the outside who can really go get it. And, and that to me speaks, yeah, there was one that was probably maybe a touchdown, maybe it wasn't, but that that those numbers speak to me that, that Spate of Michigan did not do a good enough job of delivering a ball where his receiver had a real chance to make a play on it. And that, that can't happen when you have the talent Michigan has on the outside. Obviously a good job by Iowa's defense, but that, God, that was an ugly game. And, and I thought that Michigan would finally be in trouble when they faced a team with a good quarterback. Because they really haven't faced any yet. Um, Colorado's kid was actually having a nice day against the against the Wolverines before he got hurt. And when the backup came in, I remember he went 0 of 7, so that was a little bit surprising. But uh, that they didn't. They, they, they lost to a team that doesn't have a good quarterback, and that really has not been any good at all this year. Uh, lost to an FCS team. So that was uh, that was surprising. Uh, other notes. I, I, I do think it's important here, when you're talking about LSU, if I was going to pick out a set of defenses to face um, as an interim head coach of LSU after the, the main head coach or the previous head coach, Les Miles, had been fired, primarily because the offense had been really stale and unimaginative, but more so just poor. I think I would want to face Missouri, Ole Miss, and Arkansas, assuming that I also had to face Alabama, which I did, and I didn't score any points against against Alabama, and that's not an improvement over previous years. Missouri's offense and conference play has given up 6.2 yards of play. In the East, that's that's atrocious. Ole Miss giving up 6.2 as well. Arkansas, holy cow. Arkansas has given up 8 yards of play in SEC games. That is so far and away the worst that any SEC defense has been at least since 2007, so in a decade, and I, I don't have the data to go back further. If anybody listening to this does, I would certainly be interested in, in seeing that data. Eight yards of play is like a full yard and a half worse than anybody else in the league this year, and it's basically a full yard worse than anybody has been in the last decade. LSU ripped Missouri. LSU ripped Ole Miss. LSU ripped Arkansas. I really think, though, that LSU would have ripped those teams apart, especially because of when they played them. You know, Missouri was reeling. Ole Miss was really reeling with all their defensive injuries. Arkansas, um, their defense has sucked all year. I, I, would Les Miles' LSU teams have put up the similar numbers against them? I, I really think so. Now, I think there's been some changes to what LSU's running on offense, and, and that's to be commended. And I do think that LSU buys into the Ed Orcheron changes, which is big. Um, if he can continue to do that, then maybe he does deserve to be the head coach there if they went out. 
But, man, think about the schedule he's been able to play. Now you get Florida with a backup quarterback and, like, five missing defensive starters. You get Texas A&M with, with some defensive injuries and also their quarterback, Trevor Knight, who kind of revitalized them this year. He's out for the year. This has just been an absolutely tailor-made schedule for Ed Orgeron. And really, what, ask yourself, do you think that – that how many, how many games do you think Les Miles would have lost – Assuming that he would have lost Alabama as well, no doubt. Do you think he would have lost more games against the, the remaining schedule after he was fired than, than Ed Orgeron's going to do? I, I don't think so. I think that Ed Orgeron and Les Miles would have had probably a pretty similar record in, in the remaining games. Now, Orgeron deserves credit for being able to pull LSU out of the sort of post-Bama tailspin uh, that, that it's been in over the last couple of years. But, man... This has been a really nice, cushy scheduling for him. Uh, a couple more things. I, I did some quick back-of-the-napkin math this morning as far as the chances of each team in the Big Ten uh, East winning out. Came up just with projected spreads. Michigan about 35 to 40%. Um, Penn State about 80 to 85%, uh, depending on what you think of Michigan State, which looked really good over the weekend, but they were playing Rutgers. That Michigan State game might be a little bit tougher than people think for Penn State. And then Ohio State at about 55%, assuming that they have, uh, they're near locked to win this weekend and they're going to be, I don't know, probably 60, 65% to win um, over Michigan. So Michigan is in the best position as far as having tiebreakers, but they are in the worst position in terms of, of the difficulty of remaining games. That's an interesting little split there. Finally, uh, I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to run quickly now over some of the games of the week, betting-wise, that are some interesting spreads. Ohio State opens. These are opening lines, of course, uh, as a 21.5-point favorite at Michigan State. Uh, no line, interestingly, in Louisville at Houston because we don't know the status of Greg Ward, Houston's quarterback. Uh, Indiana at Michigan. Michigan's a 25.5-point favorite. I might be inclined to take Indiana there, just because Michigan, they do not need style points. If I'm Michigan, I just win, rest my starters, knowing that if I, the only game I really have, I don't need style points in a game. All I have to do is win out, and I'm in. So that, that does seem like an interesting number. We know that Indiana will keep, will keep trying to fire late in games. Uh, Clemson minus 21.5 at Wake Forest. That, that's an interesting number, too, because Wake Forest comes off a, a win or a loss where they played Louisville hard three quarters and then just totally fell apart in Q4. Um, Clemson has South Carolina on deck. It's coming off an emotional loss that you don't necessarily know how they're going to bounce back. Um, the sleepy road game there at Wake Forest is always kind of tough just because it doesn't feel like a college atmosphere. If you've been to Wake Forest, it feels like you're, you're in a big high school stadium, and the, it's, it's just different. Wisconsin minus 27 at Purdue. Uh, Purdue's, damn, Purdue's really bad. Wisconsin's offense has been playing better of late. Uh, Arizona State at Washington minus 25. Again, an interesting sort of letdown look-ahead sandwich for Washington here. Just lost to USC at home. Um, got Washington State on deck. Arizona State away from home has been terrible. They've also had a lot of quarterback injury issues. And Arizona State's offense, when they've played a defense with the pulse, has been terrible this year. Granted, part of that was the quarterback issues. 
Probably the game of the week is uh, Oklahoma laying three points at West Virginia. You know, OU has looked better of late, although I, I do kind of question who they've defeated. West Virginia, uh, I was really not impressed at all with quarterback Skylar Howard. And Texas' defense this year has been Swiss cheese, and yet he threw the ball to Texas way too often. Uh, but I don't know, that's sort of two teams that are at the top of the Big 12, and yet I don't know that they've really separated themselves from the rest of the Big 12 by that much. Penn State's land 27 at Rutgers. Uh, Rutgers is a, a tire fire. Oregon is a 12-point underdog at Utah. I I might have to lay that with Utah just because they, I mean, Oregon is, is a disaster right now. You wonder if they're sort of one of those teams that is, is a real quick contender. That, are they just going to quit on the year? Washington State at Colorado. Colorado's favored by three and a half here. And Washington State is getting a ton of love from folks. And, no, maybe they could beat Washington. I, I, I don't know, man. Washington has really handled all the teams this year that have not had better talent. Like, it's, it's won all the games. If you just went on pure athletic talent, Washington has won every game that it was supposed to win or that, it, that had superior talent. And it lost the only game that it didn't. I think it's very interesting that Colorado and Washington are, are power rated here about even. This is a look-ahead spot for Washington. Colorado needs this game if it wants to uh, to go to the Pac-12 title. Uh, and then Oklahoma State at TCU. TCU has been playing better football lately. They, they, they really have. And uh, they're, they're favored by four here. I, I might be inclined to, to take the Horned Frogs and lay those points in Fort Worth. Um, Buffalo at Western Michigan. Western Michigan sort of quietly not playing as good a football recently despite their continued undefeated record. Uh, I know Kent State gave them trouble for about a half on Tuesday night. I don't think anybody saw that because of the election, but that was curious. Uh, USC is laying 10.5 at UCLA. UCLA does play defense. I'll, I'll give them that. Now, their their offense is uh, not any good, and Jim Mora probably deserves more heat than he's getting out there because – People on the West Coast oftentimes don't really give a damn, at least based on our traffic numbers out there. Uh, probably should be getting more more blame than he is for for making that offensive change and, and dumping Noel Mazzoni and trying to run more pro style, uh, which has just not worked at all, and now Josh Rosen's hurt. Florida State land 20.5 at Syracuse. This is a, uh, it's a pretty big look-ahead spot for FSU. The Florida game still means a lot in, in, in Tallahassee, no doubt. Um, Syracuse. Likely without quarterback, uh, Eric Dungy. I made this line 17, and that's actually where it opened at. Uh, it got quickly bet up to 20 and a half. Florida State has been a bad, bad bet to cover spreads on the road uh, when when the Seminoles leave the state of Florida under Jimbo Fisher, especially in conference play. So keep that in mind. If that gets up around 22, 23, I, I think you probably got to pop Syracuse there, regardless of quarterback. Uh, Florida at LSU. Vegas is just giving you no opportunity to take the Tigers here. Um, you got to lay 14. Florida is the best defense by far, other than Alabama, that LSU has seen without, or you know, since firing less miles. But man, I oof. I, I really don't want to back Florida on the road either. Away from home, they've been they've been really bad. Uh, they didn't look all that good against South Carolina. They looked terrible at Arkansas. I may be talking myself into 
you know, laying the points with LSU here, actually. But that's, I don't know. Probably want to see Leonard, Leonard uh, Fournette's health as well. I know he got banged around in that game some at Arkansas as he was pinballing off all, all their defenders. Nebraska favored by 14.5 over Maryland. That's uh, Maryland's just a mess. Their quarterback's hurt. Nebraska, I don't think, is that good, but there's a difference between it, – it's important to, to tear teams off, right? Nebraska is a decent team. Is Maryland a bad team or a horrible team? I think for most of the year they were playing – like a, a below average team. Recently, though, I think they've been sort of teetering on that somewhere between bad and horrible. Um, Michigan killed them. Ohio State killed them. Yuck. Uh, Boise State's laying 26 uh, on the blue turf to UNLV. Texas A&M laying 26 uh, at home against Texas San Antonio. That's actually a game I might look to back UTSA. That is a major letdown look-ahead sandwich for Texas A&M. Uh, with the whole loss to to Ole Miss at home, it's kind of a, a crushing loss emotionally. And then you have LSU on deck in, in the uh, traditional um, Thanksgiving game. San Diego State is laying seven and a half at Wyoming. The uh, the Aztecs have been playing awesome lately, and that's that's impressive there. And Troy looking to close out an undefeated Sun Belt season is at home hosting Arkansas State, and they're laying eight. So. That is, uh, those are our, most of your spreads for the weekend. Oh, uh, one more. Notre Dame actually opened up a one-point favorite at Virginia Tech. Or, or, excuse me, hosting Virginia Tech. Huh. Vitech, which uh, lost as a, a double-digit favorite again. That's, that's two big-time upset losses suffered by the Hokies this year as Georgia Tech went up there and ripped them even without their starting quarterback and with a couple backup offensive linemen. Kansas State is favored by two and a half at Baylor. That's pretty wild. I think that'll do it. We are right at about the 50-minute mark. Uh, if you like this, give me some feedback, of course. I, I wanted a place to where I could kind of drop some of my thoughts on college football as, as well as recruiting, um, as well as gambling. Those are sort of the three things that I do for SB Nation. I don't want to call this the Budcast, but uh, certainly if, if you want to, that's fine. Uh, you can leave me a rating on iTunes, uh, five stars. As always, it'd be great. And share this. Uh, I like doing a podcast for it. I don't always want to go this long uh, as a person that doesn't always have guests on. But this was fun. Got to kind of dump out my notebook and, and see what, what catches your fancy. And um, Until next time, enjoy it.